0: The following episode of Geeks and Beats contains language or subject matter that may be unsuitable for children. Listener discretion is advised.
1: How you doing, by the way? I was in the sun all day having uh, my new vodka. I had a nap. My wife woke me up about six minutes ago, and uh, she wisely <laughs> made me a cup of coffee, so I'm coherent for this particular event.
2: So... <laughs> So you are literally about 10 minutes in. I'm. Yes. All right, stand by. Here we go.
0: From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Haynesworth, featuring musical guest Sting.
2: Don't stop believing in crowdsourcing. We'll introduce you to music producer Rob Wells and his amazing Journey cover. Plus the 40th anniversary of Pac-Man, which marked the demise of the pinball machine. Such a sad day for you, I'm sure. It really, really, really was. Okay, Boomer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth.
2: This is, uh, your, your brain must be breaking because not only are you a huge pinball fan, but this is the 40th anniversary of Pac-Man, of which you are also a huge fan.
1: Uh, there were three of us who went to the University of Winnipeg who skipped classes to go to one of the um, arcades on Portage Avenue whenever one of us had a class we didn't want to go to. And we fed an endless amount of quarters into a Pac-Man console. And one of the guys, his name was Donald, became extraordinarily good. He would stay in the arcade after we, me and Charlie, went back to school watching the real pros learn how to play. Ever since I was a young boy? The silver ball. From Soho down Dryden, I he found this particular maneuver, and it worked every single time. That if he followed one particular path, there would, and you you took your um, your your, your Pac-Man guy and put him in a in a corner the ghosts would operate in a pattern where they would bounce off you and then when they did that you were free to gather all the other dots unimpeded it was an amazing thing to see i think you had to go to, through about 32 or 33 screens to get to that point
2: how much money do you think you put in
1: untold millions untold millions we back then so this is 198081 so it's still brand new Everybody was still going to arcades. And there were several games of choice. There was uh, Galaga. Galaga, Galaga. Galaga, okay. Galaga, Centipede, uh, Frogger, and Space Invaders for some, and then Pac-Man. But everybody wanted to play Pac-Man.
2: Take a wild guess as to how much money Pac-Man has grossed in the last 40 years.
1: I can't even begin to imagine. It must be in the hundreds of millions of dollars.
2: Okay, I'm going to give you prices Right rules, closest without going over, and then I'm going to turn it over to the interns to guess as well, so long as they don't cheat. So what I have to do is come up with a number that is the gross amount of revenue for all Pac-Man games? The entire Pac-Man franchise. Of which, by the way, for the record, the actual figure, the vast majority of it, came from people like you pumping quarters into the machine.
1: Okay, uh, so for 40 years, with all the licensing, with the Buckner and Garcia song... I got a pocket full of quarters. Are we counting Ms. Pac-Man
2: and some of those other ancillary games? The entire franchise.
1: I don't know. I'll say, I'll say $75 million. Yeah.
2: $75 million. Okay, I'm going to put it out to... Uh, okay, Mike H., who is apparently not me, has said $1.5 billion. Without going to the Google and checking, Kyle Philstrom says $200 million. Go into the chat. Punching the figure that you think it is. Blake Limburner has just put his hand over the screen, which makes me concerned about what is below. Oh, Okay, he's just taking it completely off video. Good. Mark Wagner says $800 million. $2 billion from Kevin Button, who also took his screen off because he's not wearing pants. <laughs> All right, the actual figure, $14.1 billion. No. Wow, and where did that money go? Was it... What was the name of the company? Is it, T- is it Namco was the original company, which was bought out by Bandai. Um, and Bandai includes Midway Games, which is also in the pinball machine environment. And 1980 was not only a big year for Pac-Man as the introduction of the video game, but it was also the year that in the world of pinball, the Black Knight was released. And it was the very first time pinball went digital. Oh. It brought pinball to a whole new level because it was the first among the pinball machines that had ramps and elevated flippers, and it did something that no other game did because it was digital. It would provide the player with incentives to continue to play, and it would provide free balls on a randomized basis and on a basis based upon that specific machine. So for the first time in pinball history, you could play a pinball machine where you could get free balls if you went to the store where nobody ever played the machine versus the arcade that everybody went to. And if you were a really good player, more so than anyone else who ever played the Black Knight in that particular location, you could play all day on a single quarter. I remember the game, but I don't remember playing it. The problem was, was that the introduction of Pac-Man in 1980 and the Pac-Man fever that followed, and of course, the ridiculous song, you know, that one. Yeah, Buckner
1: and Garcia, Pac-Man fever.
2: People started to focus on video games and less so on pinball machines because pinball had one primary problem, even though it had also gone digital in 1980. By 1986, Williams High Speed had tried to figure out how to change the economics of it by giving the good players even more incentives to continue to pump quarters in because again that was the problem if you're really good you could play on just one quarter but by 1986 they figured out that they can draw in the good players to continue to pump in quarters the problem was was that that made it that much more difficult for new players of any given pinball deck to be able to play it successfully enough to feel like they wanted to invest even more money into it. And so because video games could alter the difficulty level and increase the difficulty level as the game progressed in a way that pinball couldn't, it really marked the beginning of the end of pinball at the same time that Pac-Man came out.
1: That's true, because some of the games that came out were very, very difficult to play. They were very complicated. You didn't know where, how you get your points. You didn't know any strategies. Uh, and you continued to play the newfangled pinball machines like you would play the old ones. And that did not work. And 25 cents and three balls went very, very quickly. The other thing, too, was that this was the age, the golden age of stand-up consoles. And it was... Pinball was considered to be kind of old-fashioned and boring. In the early 80s, we had Techno Pop, and we had Star Wars, and we had Star Trek, and it was all about the future. It was, you know, video graphics and computers and all that sort of stuff. So, So pinball games, no matter how much they tried to make them digital, were still extraordinarily analog and therefore uncool. So you would go into one of these arcades back then, and you would see rows and rows and rows of pinball games that nobody was playing because they were uncool. Everybody was playing
2: uh, the the new stand-up consoles. Did you have an Atari 2600 back in the day? I did not. Now, the, the reason why I ask is because uh, Atari had its own version of Pac-Man. It came out, I believe, two years after the uh, arcade version of it. And it looked nothing like the original arcade model the 2600 was the one that that crashed and burned there there was a what the atari 2600 was easily one of the most successful video game consoles of all time let me finish let me
1: finish so what happened was (laughs) they introduced the 2600 and uh a lot of other competition comes in at exactly the same time so atari and this is called the atari crash in japan it's the great video game crash in 1983 where sales went off a cliff and you may know the story of the ET game and there was another game that was buried in a landfill in
2: the it was the ET game that was buried the, in a landfill there were yeah, two absolutely. games
1: there were two games and one was the ET game and there were 700,000 cartridges buried in this landfill in in, in, uh, in um, New Mexico that required uh, an archaeological dig about five or six years ago and they found them all
2: the video game crash of 1983 was not technical. It looks like, according to Wikipedia, so you know it must be true that revenue peaked at around 3.2 billion in '83, then fell to about 100 million within just two years, which is about a 97 percent drop, which led the bank to the bankruptcy of several companies producing home computer-type consoles. But the 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 Atari 2600 was easily the most successful video game console of all time at, for like a generation. I I remember the other game. It was called Escape. Okay. And it was based
1: on the Journey album called Escape. Oh, my God. If you played the game, uh, it was you and the band trying to get past groupies and evil promoters and whatever to you know earn enough money to be a rock band. And uh, it had a terrible 8-bit soundtrack. And one of the songs... We're wrapping this up in a nice bow. One of the songs from Escape was... Hit me. Don't stop
2: believing. When I showed this video to you, you lost your mind.
1: Um, hang on. Let me get it back here. What's wrong? Uh, it's me losing my mind is no big deal, but uh, it happens all the time. What do you got? What is this?
2: <gasps> this is Don't Stop Believing. Oh, no. Crowdsourced no, no. remix no, no. by Rob Wells. Uh, and it blew your mind last week. Yes, it did. That's right. So we, ha- we, we we sort of have to play it. Maybe get us into the mood, right? Go ahead. Okay. All right. So here we go. Okay, first of all, points for the keytar, don't you think? Uh, Michael
1: has a thing about a keytar. It, it's almost uh, like a sexual fetish. Um, I've had to drag, I've had to drag him off one you at blew least once. You pull the post.
2: I don't hear anything. Uh, you're not hearing this. No, I'm not. None of you are hearing this. No, we're just. How is that him. possible? We're supposed to be able to hear all of this. I do not hear a thing. Oh, share computer sound. Well, that would help.
1: You want to start again? <laughs> you think maybe we should? Okay, go ahead.
2: Oh, what a loser I am. All right, let's 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 try this again. All right. And, and here I was, I was like, you know what? You're, you're going to hit the post beautifully. Oh. It's going to be an amazing radio experience.
1: I would have done that uh, instinctively if, if you had actually pressed the right buttons.
2: But clearly I didn't. No. All right, let's try this. Are we doing it? Now are you hearing it?
1: Yes, I'm hearing it just fine.
2: All right. All right, now talk to the Post. All right, here we go. Don't stop believing. It's Rob Wells. Oh, Jesus. Harder, <laughs> living in a
0: she
1: took the midnight train going anywhere Just a city boy born in He took the midnight train
2: going anywhere Okay, stop stop stop. Stop it right here. Okay. Like at the very least the double neck guitar yeah, no, the double neck guitar is really cool. And who is the guy that has the Steve Perry voice? I don't know. Let's find out. Bringing in the man behind this, it's Rob Wells. He is a Canadian producer, songwriter, and one half of the music production team, The Fourth Floor, with award-winning recording artist, Shoba. He's also worked with Ariana Grande, Justin Bieber, Nick Lachie, and uh, Lachie? Le- Lachey, Lachey yes. and the Backstreet Boys, and we won't hold that against him. But he's also spent time with uh, Cindy Lauper, uh, Maxi Priest, and Olivia Newton-John. He's worked on uh, uh, So You Think You Can Dance. His music's been featured on uh, The Late Show with David Letterman and The Smurfs Too. Rob, where are you coming from tonight?
3: Hey, hello from just outside of Toronto in beautiful Pickering.
2: From the back deck, no less.
3: Yes, exactly.
2: Uh, all right, so Alan had a question
1: yeah who is the dude with the steve perry voice he could sub in if the filipino guy ever falls off the face of the earth
3: yeah that's travis cormier uh from quebec actually he's from new brunswick but uh he was on lavoie which is the voice in quebec and i think he won that year i'm not sure if he won or he came in second place but he's unbelievable he's he's great and uh he put out a record last year that was produced by bob rock
1: how did you put together all these people to to do this
3: I know all of these people. I've worked with all of these people. Um, I I basically just sent out a massive email to everybody. I threw the, you know, the net out wide. And I expected only just a few people to come back and say, yes, I'll I'll do this. Everyone's busy.
1: No, 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 no. Everybody is not busy. That's the point.
2: (laughs)
3: These people are busy still. Oh, okay. In
2: in what way? Why are they busy? How are they busy when so many others are not?
3: I've... To tell you the truth, I've never been busy myself, busier than I am right now ever since the pandemic hit. Uh, I have just as many jobs. The only thing is that my hours of working have shrunk down. And I think it's the same thing for everybody else, where their actual time for going in and and working on the things that they're already scheduled to do, uh, their time has just really sort of uh, been minimized greatly. And uh, they still have the same amount of work. There's uh, a lot of jobs still on the table happening right now. In the music field,
2: so what was the inspiration for this? First of all, let's let's start with "Don't Stop Believing" in the first place. Awesome track, um, Alan. I think is getting a little tired of me wanting to play it in yes. variations upon variations. Yes. But what was what was the the idea behind that? And then crowdsourcing it with all the people you've worked with.
3: You know, it's a great song. It's it's. I, I've seen a lot of the songs that have been released over the last couple of months, and there's been a lot of slow ballads and you know very heartfelt songs going out there and i really just wanted to bring something to the table that was very uplifting that for five minutes somebody could listen to this and completely forget about everything else that's going on and just raise their spirits and put them in a great mood uh this was actually the original idea was from my manager bill miller uh out of vancouver he said you know have you seen these videos have you thought about doing anything like this um and i instantly just thought don't stop believing that's a that's a great song my second choice was living on a prayer, which I might still do. But, uh. How
1: many people are there in the video?
3: I think there's close to 40. That many? Yeah.
1: How? Yeah. So how do you begin to do something like this? I mean, there's you at the beginning with your guitar, and you're providing the music. So how do you produce I, By something? the
2: way, I, I noticed a, a tone in your voice when you said "guitar."
1: <sighs> <laughs> See, again, that sexual fetish it comes up again and again. Let me let me ask. Uh, how how do you do something? Did you do it through Zoom? Is it a Zoom thing?
3: No, not at all. Uh, just through iMessage, and uh, just it was a lot of organization. So the the very beginning was just me coming up with the basic track. So I came up with programming just with keyboards, drum machines, all that sort of thing. And then I found an acapella of Steve Perry singing the original, and so I put that over the top. And then I sent that out to everybody, and I said, "Here's this thing. Here's what I'm thinking about doing." If you'd love to be a part of this, if you, if you have any interest in doing this, then please sing as little or as much as you want of this song. Um, totally cool if you come back with one line or all the way to the entire thing. And I got most of everybody, they, they sent back the entire song from top to bottom. Some people even sent back multiple takes. And it was all just done through iMessage, through uh, WeTransfer, uh, just a lot of organization going back and forth. So what are they doing, though?
2: Are they listening to your version in their head and then recording a separate version of them playing it back, so to speak?
3: That's right. So what they had to do was have a laptop or a desktop beside them with headphones plugged into that, and they're listening to what I sent them. Some people wanted the version with Steve Perry singing so that they could sing along with it, and other people wanted just an instrumental, and I sent them that as well. How did you keep keep everybody in
1: in time in terms of tempo and key?
3: Well, it, that's, that's the reason why they sing along with the track, okay. uh, so that the tempo was all, all the same. And then basically, I, I asked them all to wear headphones and sing into their iPhone or their Android device or whatever it is that they were recording on. And then it was just a matter of me taking all that footage and, and the, the glorious task of editing it all. That was a bit of a nightmare.
2: Oh I can only imagine like if, if you've got people recording into an iPhone I am amazed at the quality of the recording on an iPhone generally I've recorded podcasts using that I've like I've recorded podcasts using Zoom as we are right now but there is an intense amount of post-processing necessary to make it sound vaguely listenable
3: yes. I thankfully have the most amazing person that I use for mixing and mastering. His name's Chris Anderson, out of Definitive Sound in Mississauga. And he has mixed everything for me since 1995. He was able to take all the different bits of audio. Once I had it all assembled and everything all put together, every single piece of audio that came back was different in quality. Some of it was amazing, some of it was absolutely horrible, but he was able to go through and completely match each track so that one to the next, to the next, to the next sounded as if they had all just come through my studio and, and sang for me. But yes, it was all recorded through through iPhone. I think a couple of people sent wave files that they recorded on microphone. I know Alan Doyle did that. Uh, the Dark Tenor from Germany did that as well. Uh, but the majority were were straight iPhone recordings.
1: That's incredible. So did they set up? I know that you can go to the settings in iPhone and get it to record in stereo. Did you have them do anything special? with their settings or did they just take whatever they they sent you
3: I really wanted to make it as easy as possible for them just because I know everyone's busy and I just said whatever you can do however you can do it I just need video and audio together wow see the things that you can do with a little bit of ingenuity its pretty cool oh there's so much you can do I I just even online I, I I'm lucky being a music producer and a songwriter I've basically been working in quarantine for 20 years uh, <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm really used to doing this and sending files out and receiving files back and putting it all together quite often when i need a guitar solo on a track i will farm that out to somebody that lives far away from me or string sections i'll get everybody to record in their own home and then they send those parts back and i yeah. assemble it here
1: i was listening to an interview with bob rock and he was saying the same thing he's living in maui and he's got this great recording studios that he doesn't use that much anymore, because nobody can afford to use a studio, and they can't spend months and months and months putting together a record. So all his whole life has been exchanging tracks over the internet,
3: yeah. it, it is a lot of that. It, uh, it's been it's been that, I would say since two thousand and five, two thousand and six for me.
2: So then what's your best advice to the rest of us who are just discovering work from home as a result of COVID-19? Uh, there are a bunch of issues that I think most of us who aren't accustomed to doing that have to overcome. One of them, I think, is social uh, and the idea that you're just not interacting with people the way you used to. How do you overcome
3: that? I've always embraced technology. I've loved anything technical that's that's coming down the line. And uh, I love to text over talking. Uh, it's... Uh, <laughs> It's just, it's, it's, it's a lot faster to, uh, to do that sort of thing. Uh, there's nothing better than having an artist coming in and recording a vocal with the artist in the room with you and you know, giving it back and forth and really feeling the energy and having them sit down with you and have a meal with them in between and all of that. That's great, but if you can't do that, there's many, many ways to do it, to, to make it happen. I've done two records where nobody ever left home. Everybody just did everything. I did all the tracks here in the Toronto area and all the vocals were recorded in London, England, and then they were sent back to me where I edited everything. And it's just, as long as everyone is okay with embracing technology and you have fast internet speeds, then things can happen. But there's still that psychological component to the whole thing.
2: How are you ensuring that you still actually have human interaction in your life?
3: Well, uh, to be honest, the human interaction during these times comes from my children. And uh, so I get that in the morning. I get a good dose of that. But with work life, I do a lot of this. There is a lot of talking back and forth on, on devices like this, like Zoom or any other thing, uh, FaceTime. Uh, there's also texting as well. I mean, this is kind of the way of the future. It's it's half of my communication is in the written form and texting, and half of it is like this. And I think it's going to become more and more into the texting realm as we go forward.
1: All right, but you're working as a producer and you have some ideas about how a song should be arranged or maybe an idea for a particular part a guitar solo, a just a change in you know uh, the drum chart or something like that.
3: Uh,
1: how do you communicate that if, if you're not doing it face to face in a studio?
3: Well, I'm also a big believer in I, I believe in the talents of who it is that I'm working with. Right, hire smart people and let them do their work. Well, exactly, exactly. It's just like you know, if, if, all the great leaders are the people that hire people and let them lead the way, basically. Uh, that that's kind of what I believe in uh, there's lots of times where I work with vocalists where they come in to work with me and uh, I've never worked with them before but I, it's, I know that each and everybody has their own strengths and weaknesses and I listen to what they can do and I work with that and quite often with the guitarists or the drummers or people that I work with these are people that I've worked with many many times before and I know that what they deliver is exactly what I would want in at the end so okay. there's never a question
1: well, I guess it was Bob Brock doing something with uh, Richie Zambora, and they never, I don't think they set foot in the same place.
3: I listened to that same podcast. That was that, oh, you you knew, the Bob Lefcits one. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's what I'm talking about.
2: Yeah. Same thing with the movie industry, largely. You know, everybody ends up in front of a green screen now that you en- don't end up working with anybody a- at all. Speaking of working with anybody, I have to say this has got to be my most recent, most embarrassing moment ever. when. I saw this music video, and I'm like, you know what? we got to talk to the guy behind this music video. And I gave Rob Wells the exact same pitch that I would have given anybody else. And the response I got back was, you know, we went to college together.
3: (laughs) So you were not very social in college? Awkward! Uh, No. to, To be honest, I was only in the radio broadcasting program at Humber College for two to three months uh, before I realized that it was not to, not not exactly what, what I was meant to be doing. I do remember you, though, very much because I remember on the first day that you were in class, and, sorry, I'm speaking to, to Michael right now, uh, just when you spoke. I thought, come on, there's no way that that guy sounds normally like that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so d- d- to that story, okay, you're not you're not right and you're not wrong. I, I, one of the biggest complaints that my television boss. Had my first television boss was he'd come to me, stop sounding like Roddy Radio, and I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> this is how I speak. <laughs> this is how I speak. And what the TV guy never understood was that radio people their their voices their instruments, and they have to hone it. So I got into radio at seventeen. I wanted to be on the radio from age seventeen, and so from that point forward, I started working on honing my instrument and and perfecting it if one couldn't, and not that one could ever do that. Uh, and the point being is that what I would try to explain to this guy is that your voice has a range, and we all trade within a specific range. And if you listen to me and you hear me get excited about something, my voice goes up like this, but it's still my voice. And if I have to get very serious, it goes down like this. But it's the ability to um, hone that instrument, to, to mix metaphors, to to be able to play with that voice and that instrument on all sorts of different octaves depending on what's necessary. He just thought, well, this was the way I always sounded. <laughs> but the, the, the truth is, is that I never sounded like that before I was 17. At 17, I sounded like this. And the problem with sounding like that at 17 when you want to be on the radio is that you got to do something about that. And it turned out, when I went to a near nose throat doctor, he's like, you've got collapsed Situs passages, and we need to rotor root your sinus passages so that they don't sound like that anymore. And once, because and, otherwise, it was um, it was nasal spray just to get br- uh, air through your nose. And you know, whether you get into radio or you as a music producer, you know that that vocal instrument comes from multiple places in your body, depending on what kind of tone you want to present.
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I also do remember thinking, if editor there's a guy in the radio program that's going to make it, it's you. <laughs> I didn't go
1: through any of that. What you hear is natural.
3: Oh, this pure <laughs> talent.
2: One of the other stories I tell related to my, my vocal delivery is the delivery side of it as opposed to the vocal side of it. And it's Alan Cross specifically. Yes. Because... Um, when you're, when we got into that radio program, one of the things that we were taught was find someone whose delivery you like, mimic it, and then make it your own once you figured out what you're doing. And I never mimicked Alan Cross's delivery as far as the tone of it, but I mimicked the idea that you could read something off a piece of paper without it sounding like you were reading off a piece of paper.
1: Yes. So what you, what he's saying is that what you hear, that's his fault or no sorry it's my fault i suppose
2: what you hear is my fault the way you hear it you get the credit for okay oh thank you very much yeah
1: okay this
2: uh this this <laughs> took a weird turn into talking about you and, and your adenoids um it, it like seriously when they, they roto-rooted my sinus passages they packed them with I, I apologize to the interns who are watching us record this live uh, they pack your sinus passages with gauze yeah. and. And and your sinuses fill up with blood as a result, which is no surprise, I suppose, when they roto-rooter them to clear them out. But eventually, all of that blood congeals. Ugh. And then you've got to remove it. And so I had a scheduled appointment to have them go in and remove it. But instead, wait, I had wait, removed... Wait, 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 wait. How long did you keep the gauze in your face? It was, like, supposed to be for two weeks or Oh, like that.
3: oh man. And, and for, so... So for the entire time, you're a remote reader? Yeah, oh, yeah, totally. Oh,
2: God. Yeah. So I just got tired of it, and I removed the gauze myself. And then what you ended up with, because like you go, <clears throat> when you breathe oh. in, you like, you're like, like, it was still plugged. I oh, dried blood. Dried blood. But it's not dried blood, because when blood dries, when it's a little blood, it dries and flakes, right? But when you've got a lot of blood, it congeals. Yes. And so I ended up pulling this rubberized. Oh, no. No, no, no. And you could feel it inside your sinus passage peel away from the edges of the of the cavity. And <laughs> and I pulled out into the palm of my hand, oh. a hand of God, a baseball sized ball of congealed blood, just as my younger brother walked into the bathroom, watching his older brother pull his brains out from his nose. Oh God, how old were you at this time? I was seventeen.
3: Oh, I have a question. Do, do you still have the baseball size? ball of did you yeah, keep what did
1: you do with it?
2: Keep it in a mason jar? No, nah, I just roll it
1: up and stick it under the desk.
2: <laughs> oh god! Oh god! The amazing thing was to inhale through my nose for the first time and actually. Feel the air going through my sinus passages. The downside is, is that I would get so sick at the drop of a hat because I didn't have that protective lining in my sinuses anymore that your sinuses exist to to protect your lungs from.
1: Which, long story short, brings us around to your recording, which was done at the time of COVID-19, something that Michael is absolutely terrified about.
2: Yes. For precisely that reason, I am a high risk uh, individual. Are
1: you,
3: you're still that way
1: just because of the operation. You, you're because still because of that a... operation. Wow! Yeah. So we've tied it up into a nice bow. Very good. Um, does anybody else want to talk about things that they pulled out of their faces?
2: Are you <laughs> you're trying to move... to move on. You got another well, topic you'd rather discuss? Well, it,
1: I'm just trying to think. No, my sinuses are, are fine. Uh, I've had my tonsils removed. I've, oh, do you want to hear kidney stone stories? I can give oh, no, no, no. Of those. No, no. We,
2: we did like four fucking episodes of Geeks and Beats on your kidney stones. We're done. <laughs> okay. They, I did keep those. They're in a
3: jar. Excellent.
2: <laughs> yes, but unlike William Shatner, you're not getting anything when you sell those on eBay. You know what? One of the things I'm going to try to do is contact Alex Lifeson, because he works for the Kidney Foundation of Canada.
1: And I'm willing to say, Alex, let's you and me get together and auction these buggers off for charity. <laughs> There's almost enough there for, for, for honest to God for a for a charm bracelet. I think it'd be oh. very pretty for somebody somebody's mom for Christmas.
2: I don't know which was more revolting, me pulling congealed blood out of my sinus passages or your kidney stones. Rob, can we get a ruling on this?
3: I I could see somebody hanging the kidney stones off the the mirror in the car, you know? you
2: You decided radio wasn't for you. What was it that made you go down the path you ended up going down and, and bailing out of the program that when they told you and me that you know it was hard to get into, and then the guy next to me carried a duffel bag full of gym clothes when there wasn't a gym component to the program, um, something tells me that you decided this wasn't the thing
3: for you. Yes, I, I, I knew probably within the first month and that I didn't know what to do after that point. Uh, I've been playing music my whole life. I grew up in a very musical family. My brother, Greg Wells, is a music producer and songwriter in Los Angeles. Uh, we've just been inundated in music. The thing is, in high school, I did morning announcements every day, and somebody said, you know what, you've got a great voice for radio. And I thought, okay. I had no idea how to actually make it in music, so I went into radio broadcasting and Uh, not quite for me and then I just went straight into music and it's been so much fun ever since
1: well if you ever need a spoken word part done by anybody uh, let me know I can I can help you with that because none of this none of this is medically induced or altered
2: (laughs) Are, are, are you saying that I've been genetically modified to be a broadcaster I'm saying that you're part Android. Something happened to you. You're not wrong. It's suspicious the
1: the way you're into technology. So I kind of think that's indicative of something. I don't know what it is.
2: Rob, thanks so much for joining us. And thank you for not slamming me into a locker in our college years.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Uh, big fan. And uh, thanks for having me on. You bet.
2: Rob Wells is a Canadian producer and songwriter and one half of the music production team The Fourth Floor.
0: Ever wanted to be a big shot co-producer? It's just like Hollywood. Visit geeksandbeats.com to learn how you can pad your resume with an exciting show credit. We'll even send you the album cover of your episode suitable for framing in your parents' basement. We have
2: a new co-producer, my friend. About time.
1: You would think that with people in lockdown we would have more people throwing money at us because they've got nothing better to do.
2: Well, Kurt Austin is supporting. supporter is supporting the big show. He's from Peterborough, Ontario. He says that he supported the show because Rob Wells posted that he's going to be on the podcast and he wanted to support him and any media outlet that gives uh, an outlet or a, a shine a spotlight on core the talent. He says he's writing a story about the subculture of Peterborough, Ontario, and that Rob is a part of that. <laughs> it's a subculture of Peterborough. Okay. We probably should have asked Rob about that. We probably should have. I. Okay. So Kurt, thank you so much. As a matter of fact, send us a link to that story that you're writing about the subculture of Peterborough, so we can uh, school Alan Cross. Oh no,
1: wait a second. I'm gonna I'm gonna take all that back because I do remember now that Three Days Grace is from Noble,
2: Ontario, which is just outside of Peterborough. There you go. Okay. So Kurt thank you so much for supporting the show by becoming a producer on the world's most popular podcast. Technically, that gives you the ability uh, to uh, give us a story idea, so if you would like to influence the direction of the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Haynesworth, go to geeksandbeats.com, click the support the show link. You can support us via Patreon, which is what Kurt did, or via PayPal if you prefer not. Walter McVeigh likes uh, Patreon, I suppose in part because it means of his $111 lifetime pledge, we ding his credit card, one buck an episode, don't actually... Get him to do any work on the show, and all we do is say thank you. And so every time we put out an episode, we will ding his credit card only up to 111 bucks. Uh, so that ensures that you've, you know exactly how much you're supporting us, as does uh, TJ Webb, Tim Rickard, Tim Heron, Steve, Stephen Holon, Sheila McMahon, Sean Jatay, Roland Wood, Rixi, in Oakville, among others. Uh, via PayPal, Daniel Hopkins, Scott Coates, Craig Manette, Grant Ridge, and Christopher Hazen, among others uh, as well, who have decided they can't stop believing in the world's most popular podcast. <laughs>
1: Nice going. Uh, I'm going to need your tactical expertise now. If nobody can see this because this is a podcast, but you have some palm trees swaying in the breeze behind you, is that? Oh a yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it a green screen?
2: Uh, that that is an actual green screen. Watch this.
1: Are you wearing pants? He's not wearing pants. Oh, I see what you've done. Okay. Oh, that's very clever.
2: There you go. All right, so got the full he- effect.
1: I'm in the studio. Okay, I'm doing a lot of TV now, and my background isn't very good. And if you've ever seen the rate oh, a room, shit. I know. No, 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 not this, not this background. But my yeah, level. that background sucks too. By it the way, it does. But but I don't have a room for a green screen, so uh, I'm just looking at Amazon here, and I can get a green screen. How much did you pay for for your little thing there?
2: The green screen itself was probably $30, $40. Okay. But what I bought was a draw thingy so that I could have it zip back and forth. And now, I have to confess, I'm debating whether or not to get an Alexa-enabled automatic drapery system uh-huh. so that I can just say, Alexa, green screen on and have it do its thing. Okay. Like right now, for example, I can do Alexa, studio lights off. Okay. Alexa, studio light's on. Okay. Yeah, yeah,
1: see? All right, very good. All right, well, I'm going to see if I can... I'm going to... I need something. $45 for something that even includes... Uh...
2: Dude, dude um, the, the, the money you will spend on a green screen is not spent on the screen itself. It's spent on the lighting to make the screen consistent. Um. Like, here, ch- check this out. Here, look. look this is what the, the ceiling in my studio looks like.
1: Oh, for Christ's sake.
2: Yeah. And most of those lights are still pointed at the ceiling because they're usually pointed down here like this when I'm doing proper video. Like this, I'm just goofing around.
1: All right. Never mind. Um,
2: and you need space for that. That green screen is a good 10 feet behind me.
1: Yeah, I've got lots of space behind me. It's just that I don't want to go through the hassle of rewiring my, my office. And you won't come here and do that because i got two dogs and then your sinus is uh, clogged.
2: I've, I've, got, I've got a ventilator. Okay. Uh, sorry, not a ventilator, a respirator, like the the mask respirator. So Technically, if you do need me to come over, I'm more than happy to do that. Excellent.
0: Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323 319 Nerd. Follow the stories on Twitter, Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com.